the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back. Monday, January 31st, 2022. If it's Monday in our second hour, it's time for our dear friend, Brandon Weikert. He is the publisher of The Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com. He is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He's got two other books in the offing. And he is our regular Monday guest giving us a tour of the world, its flashpoints, and sometimes here, right here in America. Brandon, happy Monday. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, as always. It's always a joy being here. You bet. I'm looking through, you know, your stuff, uh, <laughs> things you produce, and I see I'm not the only one who interviews you, which is good. I'm glad yeah. uh, you're being interviewed all over the place, including the, the uh, London Express and Newsmax and everything. Yep. So this is great. Before we get to before we get to the Russia Ukraine thing, might I start with this? I, I I wake up and the first thing I do after I make sure my wits are about me and the earth is still spinning, I turn on uh, CBS because I'm always curious to see what they think the most important story is. And this morning it was a North Korea missile launch or missile test, yes. right? Yeah. And boy, howdy, uh, they, they made a big thing of it. And then the rest of the day, I didn't really hear much yeah. about it. Tell me about it. How serious is it and what we should be thinking about? This. Well, it's their fourth or fifth one in the last four weeks. Um, the one two weeks ago was much more disconcerting or three weeks ago. <laughs> that was the one where they the North Koreans launched this thing over the Sea of Japan. It went according to unconfirmed reports, people that I know working at DIA, uh, it went up to Mach 10, which means it was likely not your ordinary ballistic missile, but it actually was a rudimentary hypersonic missile. Uh, this was a few weeks ago. Uh, it was so bad that for 15 minutes the FAA ordered all air traffic on the western coast of the United States to stop. Uh, and uh, so that was the big one. And then this one yesterday... Uh, was, I believe, an IRBM, inter interrange ballistic missile. That's a medium-range nuke, non-strategic nuke, um, the kind that you would use to go attack uh, a neighbor. Uh, that, was, that was launched up, and it believed that it was aborted early because the North Koreans are trying to hide the true extent of their technical capabilities because they know we're watching these things. Um, so basically, the last month, Kim Jong-un has been popping things, these things off like their fireworks on the 4th of July, pre-COVID. Uh, and, um, you know, it's not, um, it's not good. Uh, suddenly, I tweeted this morning, suddenly Donald Trump's uh, outreach to Kim Jong-un didn't seem so crazy. Because if you remember, after Singapore, the meeting in 2017, uh, basically the, the, the whole North Korean missile problem went away for about four years. Uh, and that was even after the Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam summit was was sort of a bust, which was the follow-on to Singapore. Uh, but even then, Kim sort of uh, you know kept his his nuclear saber 
Xi. But as soon as Biden gets into power, uh, North Korea is is yet again demonstrating a growing nuclear weapons proficiency that should leave everybody in the Pacific Ocean very scared. You you answered a question I wanted to ask, and I, and I would ask if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little, a tad more on it. Thank you for doing it, Brandon. Which sure. is, I do recall, uh, as as most people will, before Donald Trump was president, North Korea, North Korea, North Korea. Everyone was worried about North Korea. Do you remember? I remember people were doing, uh, they were doing uh, evac drills in places like yeah. Hawaii and Alaska. Right. And that stopped shelter and evac drills. Yeah. That stopped, and no one talked about it for a while. There was some here and there about Donald Trump and his interactions with uh, with North Korea, but it pretty much stopped. It seemed like it was under right. control, pacified so much so that I don't think North Korea made much news in the last three years. Not much news that came our way, and now right. it's back. It's back with a vengeance because just like the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and the Venezuelans and the Cubans, uh, these regimes know with um, uh, Joe Biden what they're getting. Uh, And it is, you know, this was what the the people supposedly voted for in 2020, uh, return to quote unquote normal, which means more war fever, bad economy, uh, culture that's breaking apart and a country that's on edge and that's weaker than ever before. This is Joe Biden's America. And uh, this North Korea thing is just another example. What's going on, I think, is Kim Jong-un has done an assessment of his enemy in Joe Biden, and he has found him to be wanting. And unlike Trump, who was unpredictable, who was on Twitter blowing up uh, you know, Kim Jong-un, one of my favorite tweets was uh, in 2017, we're literally on the brink of war with Kim Jong-un, and Trump, Trump tweeted something to the effect of, Kim calls me fat. I will not respond because I want to be friends. I won't call him, uh, he calls me a, a retard, I won't call him fat because mm-hmm. I want to be friends. Yeah. This was Trump, but guess what? It worked. Yeah. It, it worked. It made leftists, you know, the elites in Washington, D.C. cringe, but it worked. And people don't remember, I remember distinctly in 2017, the rollout of all the generals and emeralds and all of the DOD officials and intelligence officials on a, like a weekly basis for like three months in 2017, going before Congress basically saying war is going to happen, this is what it's going to look like because we can't settle the, the North Korean issue, and it is going to be worse than Vietnam, it's going to be the biggest war we've ever fought, and we might not even win, and it's going to be costly and suffer. And all that went away overnight when, when Trump was just like, you know what, I'm just going to reach out to the guy and see what I can get. And it went away. It wasn't even like, oh, it was cool. I mean, they stopped. Yep. And they, they, they was a window of opportunity. And unfortunately, it didn't work out ultimately. But just picking up the phone to this guy in Pyongyang, and I think it's because... Kim Jong-un thought Trump was as crazy as Kim was. And so Kim kind of was trying to play ball because he knew he wasn't sure that if he did go into war that he would be able to win. Whereas with Biden, I think that Kim thinks I can push my luck because this guy is weak and he's being tested everywhere and he's failing at every test, both internationally and at home. I wonder, Brandon, if you see an analog or if one could be made between what the Iranians thought they could get away with under Carter 
and the immediate release of hostages, American hostages, upon Reagan's inauguration. Absolutely. I mean, these dictators are all the same at the end of the day. They all operate by the same playbook. It's not that complex. Um, you've, you've got it. The schoolyard rules apply. This is not, you know, your, your average academic debating society. Uh, Democrats don't understand that, and a lot of Republicans don't either. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the downside of the Trump outreach was that, yes, everybody knows Tim continued working on the missiles. He just did it quietly. But he wasn't firing them off. And that was he wasn't terrorizing uh, children on the uh, on the right. uh, uh, on the American Hawaiian Pacific, Island. right? Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. right. So you know that's key. That's key. And so, and my wife just gave me a thumbs up. So obviously, I'm hitting the nail on the head. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, <laughs> um, but uh, you know that's key. And unfortunately, um, for for us today, we are led by the single worst president. I mean, I'm you know I'm a millennial, so this is the single worst president in my life. But I would argue the single worst president, he actually, I think, is going to be worse than Carter. Uh, my friend Greg Copley always says, uh, you know, he's, a, he's an Australian former advisor to the Shah. And he always says, you know, Brandon, he said, I'm convinced that the whole purpose of the Biden administration is to make Jimmy Carter look good. <laughs> and I think he might be right about that. <laughs> uh, Brandon, uh, uh, one, one more thing on, uh, on that front, if you will. When you look back over the four years of the Trump administration, and in your recent memory and experience, was there a more Pacific time for America? I can't think of one. Um, probably, maybe the the kind of that '90s period, the quote peace dividend. Of maybe course, that, we had our brush. Yeah, we had our brush wars, but those were low scale conflicts that yeah. we really weren't feeling. Um, you know, the the Somalis weren't risking coming over here. And, and hitting us with nukes. Right. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, Afghanistan was a big letdown of the Clinton administration letting al-Qaeda fester as long as he did. Um, but and not for me to defend Bill Clinton, but at the time, it, it was very hard for anyone in Washington, D.C., from either party to take al-Qaeda seriously. Uh, I have friends, of course, who were working CT back then, and they were taking it seriously. But even when George W. Bush came into office, if you remember, after Clinton campaigned hard against Clinton, but the, the top uh, defense agenda for the, the George W. Bush administration, not once did it mention terrorism. No, that's right. No, that's defense. right. The campaign so, was nothing. It was all about it was all about welfare reform, criminal justice. Exactly. Re- Bill yeah, Clinton absolutely. was horrible. Yeah. Bill Clinton was horrible, but I'm not going to ding him too much on that because it was the 90s, man. He inherited and, uh, a bubble. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I think that the Trump administration, despite all the noise from the media and the elite uh, at the time, I actually think if you look at the hard facts, the economy was great. African-American employment was at high, the highest levels of since 69, all minority employment. And then foreign policy-wise, we weren't engaging in Middle East wars. We were actually drawing down in Afghanistan smartly. And oh, by the way, Iran was being contained hold, with the Abraham Hold it Accord right there. I got to hit the North break. Korea. Hold it. Hold it right there. Yeah. We'll pick up when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon Weikert, the author of Winning Space, the publisher of the Weikert Report, is our guest. You were just talking about, you know, it's a funny thing, Brandon. If you thought about the Trump years, the four years Donald Trump was president, you would have thought pandemonium. You would have thought chaos. But that's really what the words were. 
the uh, and, and and the critique, the facts were as you were laying them out, the exact right. opposite. And of course, right. everyone who wrote he was going to bring us to the brink of war and maybe start a war, um, were just plain wrong. We're just false. Right. It was all wrong. It was all false. The economy grew. The world became more peaceful. Yes. Yes. That's right. Now America, we're talking about this genteel man in the White House. The words are calm. The words are moderate. The words are experienced. And the world seems to be on the ground in pandemonium. Well, it's a kind of funny cut, divergence, isn't it? Yeah, well, it cuts to the statement that Trump got in a lot of trouble for saying, and I think it was, yet again, the reason he got in trouble is because it was true, when he said the mainstream media is the enemy of the people. Yeah. I think this is yet again proof of that. They're actively lying. They're actively, you know, they're, they're saying one thing about Trump that's actually true of the other guy. Yeah. And they're doing that to shield the other guy, Biden in this case, the Democrats in general, uh, from any type of negative press or, or quite hard questions uh, because, well, you know, he's their guy. And the question that you have to ask as an informed citizen is, why are they so gung-ho about protecting a guy like Joe Biden, who until like five years ago was the butt of everyone's jokes That's right. within the Democratic That's right. Party. That's right. Not just even in general, right. but within the Democratic Party, a guy who was never taken too seriously. Right. What is it about this guy that they want to throw in with? Well, it's simple. The same, what is it, six corporations or six billionaires own the same, own majority, 90% or 95% of all the mainstream media, so obviously these multinational corporate interests have a stake in this sort of global agenda that the Democrats have become sort of the stewards of, as well as some Republicans, that Trump and his base were challenged to. And so the bottom line is the corporate media and all of their lackeys are going to protect any Democrat because it's in their business interest to do so. Mm -hmm. And that's that's where we're at right now. And that's why now we're risking total war across Eurasia. We're talking World War level events going on. Like this is like the 1930s all over again. And everyone's asleep at the switch. Absolutely nobody in D.C. is acting like this is a serious thing. And when they are paying attention, they're not paying attention in the right way. Right. We're talking about going to war for Ukraine. That ship sailed. I told you this last week. Putin's completely outmaneuvered us on this one. So there's what we're doing now is an after, you know, a rear guard act that's losing one. So, like, everything we're doing now is so stupid because we're being led by corrupt fools. And that's the bottom line. Brandon, well, well, well articulated on all fronts. And I think it's worth pointing out that Joe Biden was always um, an outsized figure given who and what he was, which is why I think he had to lie about his resume so much, whether he was, you know, the number one yeah. student, whether he was a scholarship student, whether he was a professor of constitutional right. law. I mean, people forget this guy uh, was Senate uh, was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee and Senate Foreign Relations. Foreign Relations. Right. But he gets there on a vote of 150,000 people right. in Delaware. This this it's the same thing with Nancy Pelosi. She's this hugely right. powerful person who gets to that job by dint of a vote of, I don't know, probably something less than Joe Biden got in Delaware, probably somewhere in the 100,000 vote yep. range, running as a 
as a member of Congress. A lot of money to throw around. Right, 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 right. So it's not as if these people had large appeal, large experience. I mean, you know, no. Seth, how many how many academics have made their bones writing about the imperial presidency? Very few people have written about the brokenness yep. of the, of our congressional legislative Good point. branch. Good point. I wor- I worked there. I saw Nancy Pelosi. You know, going on about how she loves the Capitol Police. I watched her take a Capitol cop's head off because. He let my boss and I in her office 10 minutes early ahead of our meeting with her. We were in negotiations, and she she let into this guy who's charged with protecting her. This was back in 2015. And so, like, all this stuff about how she loves Capitol Hill police, and it's all a bunch of malarkey, as Joe Biden would say. They're liars, they're corrupt, and they're leading us to ruin. This country is dying in front of us. And some of us are young enough, but we're going to be here for a while, and we're not liking what we're seeing. You know, you make it. There's an interesting other side to this too, as I'm thinking about it. Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi getting to their perches by dint, obviously, up until 2020, of relatively few votes in Biden's case. And you know what? That kind of thing with Pelosi. She couldn't get elected probably in a lot of other cities. I'm thinking she probably couldn't get elected in her home city of Baltimore. Joe Biden probably couldn't get elected in Nancy Pelosi's district. Probably not. You know, he 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 it's an odd thing. And yet these people represent these two particularly. They represent a totally outsized level of power compared to what put them there and how they got there. It's it's really kind. Right. You're right. The Imperial Congress is the next book that needs to be written. You're right. right. Imperial right. presidency was all we got for years. Right. And it's like, you know, it's it's just really pathetic to see uh, that this is this is where the country is. And it, and it leadership counts. Uh, certainly Britain and France going into World War One and World War Two. They didn't have the greatest leadership. And look what happened. And people think it can't happen here. It is. It's happening right now. And I'm telling you. Russia and China and their proxies in North Korea and Iran think now is the time. And they're going to push as hard as they can, and they're going to risk world war. And we are not prepared for what happens next. And it is going to get very ugly over the next couple years. Brandon, if you had um, a radio show, and you sort of do with me, but if you had your own radio show, you would probably get the calls I get about how do you describe the fact that Joe Biden is still president, still president, and much less was made president. And, and you know, I get, I get references to books like Being There, the old Jersey Kosinski book. Uh, Peter, Peter Sellers played him in the movie Chance Gardner. You get references, of course, describing our times to George Orwell in 1984. Right. These were originally satires. These were originally fictions and novels of fiction. But the thing is, they were only funny and relevant and had purchase because there had to be a grain of truth people could recognize in those works, right? Grain of truth. And this is how it comes to be. I was, uh, for reasons I actually don't remember, (laughs) yesterday watching some debates about in the early 80s nuclear war and the mo- you may remember that ABC uh, television movie with Jason Robards the day after. Yeah. And, and, and weirdly enough, you think about it, we haven't talked about nuclear war in four years. You're, well, you're, you're just in your interviews beginning to raise this a little bit. And uh, I wonder if I could just take the break to take a pause and come back yeah. and pick up on that a little bit. 
Absolutely. Thank you very much. Brandon Weikert is our guest. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. TheWeikertReport.com is his website, and he spells his name W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report, his book, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Uh, you did a lot of interviews recently, uh, Brandon. I'm glad that they're calling you. You're, you're the expert. You're the smart one here. You know what I always say about you. Um, <laughs> yeah, right? If you want to know what's going to happen, listen to Brandon. And uh, if you want to ignore what's going to happen, don't listen to him. But um, having Very said kind. that, so an interview you did in The Sun – if I may, uh, you're talking about Russia amassing its forces, obviously, on the Ukraine, which is on a lot of people's minds right now. And the, the, the ability for the U.S. to do anything about it seems to be rather stinted. There's talk now about using the SWIFT program. Go into some of this yeah. for us. Yeah. Yeah, so, so basically, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is playing with potentially nuclear, space, cyber warfare, uh, and the Biden administration is talking about economic sanctions on a handful of very powerful Russian actors, uh, as if that's going to stop this thing. If the other side is seriously contemplating, you know, moving, they already are, moving tactical uh, non-strategic nuclear weapons into the Russian-controlled enclave in Kaliningrad, which is right between Germany and Poland, uh, then using economic sanctions, uh, cutting off Russia from the SWIFT banking network, um, that is not going to stop this thing from happening. That's not going to be the thing. If anything, that might compel it, because that's going to basically kill whatever is left of the Russian economy. And at that point, Vladimir Putin might be in a use-it-or-lose-it mentality. Uh, so, yet again, we are completely missing the mark because we have a bunch of people in charge in Washington who are obsessed with this concept of soft and smart power uh, trumping hard power. That's not how the world works, especially if you're sitting in the Kremlin. Uh, and so the, 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 the Americans want to cut off the Russians from SWIFT if they go into Ukraine. Of course... For those types of sanctions to work on a good day, you've got to do it before. The point is to dissuade, to stop the Russians from going in, not to do it after the fact. Um, and so we're just doing this thing all wrong. And meanwhile, like I said, um, you know, the Russians are very serious. Whether they're going to go in the week of February 20th to eastern Ukraine or they hold off to May, June of this year, it is my contention that at this rate they are going to go in. And uh, they are going to risk a wider war in order to secure their objective, which is taking eastern Ukraine and then being able to threaten Moldova and some of the other former Soviet states nearby. And so in order to do that, they're going to have to go in hard. And they're not gonna, they cannot allow themselves to be stopped by NATO or allied uh, interference. So they're going to do whatever it takes, including risking nuclear war. The idea that Joe Biden could call Vladimir Putin and say to Mr. Putin that Ukrainian 
it's the Ukrainians joining NATO is a non-starter. It's not going to happen. Would that not pacify Putin? I mean, what what is it that Joe Biden has left in his arsenal? Because I'm going to tell you my experience and understanding of sanctions is they work okay with allies and friends. They don't really do that much with enemies. Right. Right. And we see with Iran and North Iran Korea, is a good example. All, North Korea is a good example. Even with all the sanctions, which did do some damage, even with all the sanctions, though, ultimately, the Iranians and North Koreans are still moving along with right. their nuclear weapons right. program. They're right. still doing what they're going to do. Exactly. So, and, and in the case of World War II, many historians have argued the reason the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor was largely because we were doing the embargo on right. their oil, which was a form of sanction. Right. So, in many cases, the sanctions compel an enemy to attack. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the point about uh, Putin uh, being pacified, I said this to you last week when we talked about Ukraine, which is, you know, this didn't start happening until really 2008 when the then head of NATO and, and the EU started talking openly, publicly about Georgia and Ukraine joining NATO and the EU. And it was at that point that Putin went off the deep end and invaded Georgia, and then turned around and started preparing uh, to invade Ukraine when he did, of course, in 2014. Hold that thought um, right there, Brandon. Can I Can I hold you and pick you up on the other yeah. side of the break? Great. Perfect. Thank you, sir. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weicker. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. Brandon, uh, you were taking us back, a brief history lesson, somewhere around, what was it, uh, 2008 or so? Right. Uh, when the Europeans uh, were talking amongst themselves. Ta- pick up on that, if you don't mind. Pick up well, the bottom that. line is, the, the, the moment the Europeans started loosely talking about, oh, we're going to let, eventually, uh, Ukraine and Georgia join NATO and the EU, that was pretty much it for those countries. Uh, at that point, Russia was not going to wait around, you know, for that to happen, and so they were going to act. And all they had, the, all they had at their disposal was military power, and the rest is history, as they say. And Putin, ever since 2004, the Orange Revolution, uh, where the Americans ostensibly backed the the sort of pro-European candidate over the pro-Russian candidate, uh, Putin has, was was you know caught screaming at his television when that was going on in 04. Uh, they lied to me, the Bush administration. I'll never trust the Americans again. So, you know, four years later, you've got European heads of state openly talking about Ukraine and Georgia becoming part of the NATO and EU alliance. And, and after, you know, those four years, that was it. Putin was never going to let that happen. And so that's why we're here. That's where we are right now. And so, um, you know, would it, would it be good? For Biden to pick up the phone and say we have no intention of letting Ukraine join, that would have helped about six months ago. Okay. Um, I don't know if it will help now, though, because Putin is now, it's sort of like World War One, where the mobilization of all the different armies, once it was triggered, couldn't be brought back. And so there's Putin. He's mobilized 176 or 86,000 guys now in all their tanks, and maybe we can have an off-ramp with Biden saying, hey, Ukraine's never going to be a member. But I don't know if he trusts Biden because Biden's part of that cabal of thinkers in Washington who, under any circumstances, want Ukraine to be part of NATO. And so I don't know if, if Putin trusts him. I think Trump said something similar 
to Biden at Helsinki in 2018. Uh, and I think that's why uh, 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 Putin uh, stayed his hand for the duration of the Trump administration, because even though we were arming the Ukrainians with lethal assistance, ultimately, I think Putin thought Trump was not actually crazy enough to push ahead with Ukraine's membership in the NATO, uh, which would, by the way, be a violation in a way of the 1994 Bucharest Memoranda that the Soviet Union and the United States entered into that basically have had both of those major powers saying, you know what, we're going to let Ukraine be an independent free country so long as it remains neutral. And the Americans, to be fair, kind of broke that agreement in 2004 and then 2008. And so here we are. And I don't think Putin trusts Biden with Biden calling him and saying, hey, I'm going to you know, let you know that we're not going to ever have Ukraine part of NATO. I don't think he thinks he believes it. And so this is why we're here. I wonder if we're having a repeat of the 70s. You lived in D.C. as I did. You know the Adams Morgan neighborhood and what used oh, to yeah. be a whole bunch of ethnic restaurants. The old joke in the 70s was lose, lose a nation, gain a restaurant. Yeah. And, and you know, there's this talk if Putin takes Ukraine. I think it was in one of the articles that you were quoted in. There's this talk thinking, OK, if Russia does that, easily China will go into Taiwan are we going to have a lot of Ukrainian and Taiwanese restaurants sprouting up here, Brandon? Uh, well, there already are a lot of Ukrainian yeah. restaurants yeah. in D.C., but, yeah, you're going to have that. Uh, something to consider, um, I do think that China and Russia are coordinating. Okay. But I do think that Taiwan is still a different issue from Ukraine. Okay. Uh, Ukraine Ukraine is not part of NATO, and yet we're acting at least rhetorically like it yep. is. Yep. Um, we're not obligated to defend Ukraine, not at all. <laughs> um, whereas, excuse me, whereas uh, Taiwan, it may not be as strong of a of a commitment as NATO, Article 5. We do, though, have a legal binding agreement, the Taiwan Relations Act, which, again, it's amorphous, but it does have us committed on some level to defending Taiwan. And so what I would say to any Chinese minders in the, you know, if they're listening, uh, be very careful because, the lessons learned in Ukraine are fundamentally distinct from what would happen in Taiwan, not only because of the, the legal issues, but also because Ukraine is basically a, a flatland. It's a plain right on the border of Russia. That ultimately makes it very easy for Russian you know, mechanized infantry to roll into. Taiwan is an island, and while China's certainly building up their naval and amphibious capabilities, Taiwan is ultimately uh, sort of a fortress, and we have the capability to reinforce that if we want to. The big question at that point would be our political will. Um, but it's, it's geostrategically, geographically, it's a distinct place from Ukraine. And so while certainly Beijing's watching Russia, and I think they're going to be galvanized into greater action against Taiwan and northern India, um, because if we don't stand up with Ukraine, which we can't, uh, I think that China will be galvanized and Moscow will be protecting them diplomatically as they do whatever they're going to do aggressively in the near future. I also think it's important for the Beijing's rulers to recognize that they might make some mistakes. They might make some mistakes in trying to apply lessons supposedly learned from Russia and Ukraine to China and Taiwan or even China and northern India. These are two different places. And ultimately, there are limitations to what China will be able to achieve uh, because of that. Brandon, uh, we used to use some phrases we're bringing back a little bit because we're worried about it. Phrases like uh, tactical nuclear weapons, strategic yes. nuclear weapons. 
Uh, is there any concern that Russia or China may may redound to the use of that kind of thinking and that kind of uh, deployment? Both, yes. Uh, in the case of Russia, uh, we know that he Putin revised the Russian strategic warfare doctrine uh, about five or six years ago. Um, we don't know the extent of it, but I believe, given his obsession with Yuri Andropov, uh, as well as the fact that Putin was well-schooled in Soviet military strategy, a guy named um, uh, Soklovsky was a red marshal back in the 50s who wrote a famous treatise that was adopted by the Soviet you know, Joint Military Committee, which basically called for using tactical nuclear weapons against NATO in a first strike as part of a precursor to an invasion of Europe. Uh, and we now know that Putin is moving advanced, modern, tactical nuclear weapon systems into the Kaliningrad. We also know that the Russians are ramping up their production of hypersonic weapons. Uh, we know that China, suddenly we found over the summer, China has hundreds and hundreds of nuclear weapons that we did not know about. I think they have considerably more. Uh, you sh- your audience would be well to look up the Great Underground Wall for more on that. Uh, we also know that China is ahead of everybody in the hypersonic game, especially the news. I'm working on this article right now. The news that China is using 6G Internet, 6G Internet, uh, to uh, have direct, constant communication with its hypersonic missiles, because when these hypersonic missiles are traveling at Mach 10 or higher, uh, a plasma shield develops around them for 10 minutes. That makes radio signals impossible to get through, so they're out of control. Well, China's using 6G to send, uh, they're using lasers, rather, to send a 6G electromagnetic wave into those missiles' plasma shield, so they now have constant and continuous control over those hypersonic missiles, which can be loaded with nukes, and we don't have any active defense against in America. So I do believe, yes, China and Russia have preemptive nuclear warfare first-strike doctrines, and I think they're developing the capabilities and means right now to be able to land knockout blows on the Americans, which will come soon, especially if we keep exhibiting the kind of weakness that we've been exhibiting for the last year or so. Brandon, I have a quick break and then a quick final segment. Can you tell us what you would advise the president if he were to listen to you when we come back? I'm Seth Leibson. He's Brandon J. Weicker. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Eternal thanks to Brandon Weikert for his work with us uh, every uh, second hour, every Monday. Brandon, uh, you were brought into the White House. They said, okay, we've tried everything else. What do we do? (laughs) Or I should say we've listened to everyone else. What say you? That would be the better way uh, to put it. I would say that, you know, we've been bleeding out for a while now. Uh, There are limits to what can be done. Uh, In the near term, what we need to do is stop spending all this money on these legacy systems and focus on shoring up our defenses, our national defenses, against hypersonic weapons, which means you're going to need advanced space-based detection capabilities as well as space-based missile defense. That's sort of the big, medium to long-term, you know, uh, plan that we need to engage. In the short term, we need to enhance our cyber warfare capabilities and actually create an offensive cyber warfare doctrine. No more of this waiting for things to happen. We've got to get out ahead of them. The next thing we need to do is electromagnetic spectrum defense. All of our equipment runs on the EM spectrum, and Russia and China have developed the capabilities to deny us access to that EM spectrum that would basically make it impossible for us to communicate and coordinate during a crisis. 
We need to fix that. Then we need to also talk about uh, 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 the, the intelligence issues. We have a broken intel community. That's going to take a lot of reform and not 9-11 commission style. It's going to take something more akin to another national security act to start breaking up some of these agencies, erasing some of them, downsizing some of them, making them more uh, uh, nimble. Uh, and then we're going to need to talk also about the Navy. The Navy's yeah. a disaster. It's yeah. the tip of the spear in the Pacific, yeah. and yet our submarine force is, is woefully uh, unprepared and not big enough. And we're spending too much money on flat tops. We need to focus more on subs. We need to focus more on uh, being able to get in close to China. Uh, we need to also be able to have, uh, you know, a, 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 a space capability beyond space-based defenses. And so we talk about those things, and then the rest will fall into place. Because right now, we're deployed everywhere around the world. Uh, we're bleeding ourselves dry in these brush wars. And then in the meanwhile, we have allowed for the last 15 years the homeland to become woefully vulnerable to a direct attack. And that is what these Chinese and Russian hypersonic weapons, their cyber attacks, EM spectrum attacks, all of these things are geared toward actually threatening Americans at home so that we're so busy cleaning up the mess at home, we can't fight abroad. And so we need to fix those problems, and we're not. And the longer we wait, the more we're likely going to lose. That's the menu, folks. Those are the options. Those are the solutions. Brandon J. Weicker, as always, Godspeed to you and bless you and thank you. Thank you, sir. You Have a betcha. good one. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.